the problem is when you understand conflict, you also see the way political leaders and commanders even, military commanders, make terrible mistakes and cost lives. And, and at a certain point in various conflicts that are still going on, I could pretty much predict what was going to happen next. Because there's a logic to war and killing. You know, sometimes you have to kill more in order to just stop the war. You have to be robust rather than recede. You have to do this. You have to do that. And when I've seen the wrong decisions we made, I, I felt very, very, I felt terrible because I knew that this would inevitably mean many, many, many more thousands of people's lives brutally torn from them. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. My guest this week is one of my literary heroes, John Lee Anderson, who's been a staff writer for The New Yorker since 1998. Most of his work is focused on military conflict in Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Iraq, Afghanistan, Angola, Somalia, Sudan, Mali, Liberia. Um, he's just a global traveler, a global observer. He's written the definitive biography of Che Guevara, A Revolutionary Life. He has done remarkable profiles on the likes of Augusto Pinochet, Fidel Castro, Hugo Chavez, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. He can write about anything. And uh, on that note, one of the things that was a surprise for me, I met him six years ago at a Columbia-Cuba conference. It was a closed conference. A lot of it was off the record to talk about what Obama was going to do in terms of opening it up. So much for that. Um, thank you, Donald Trump. And he, uh, I next almost bumped into him, I think, in Mexico City, where he was supposed to come in to see the bullfighter, one of the greatest bullfighters who ever lived, Jose Tomas. And it blew me away and gave me a good laugh to know that of course, John Lee Anderson not only knows Jose Tomas, but is friendly with him and wanted to write a book about him and has had some amazing conversations with him. He talks about some of those here. Um, I don't know how many of you enjoy my bullfighting obsession, but uh, this was a fun rabbit hole to drop down with a, a really extraordinary guy. So I hope you enjoy John Lee Anderson. Well, I, I, maybe if we just start with how how this pandemic has affected you, somebody who's mm. such a, a globetrotter, and uh, I don't mean that in a pejorative way, but just by virtue of your work, you are all over the globe. Um, well, it's true. You know, it, this, is the, this is the longest I've been at home without traveling, um, and it's been since February that I've been at and we're now in June, so that's a long time since I broke some ribs in 2004 by getting on my then 10-year-old son's uh, BMX bike and being catapulted off of it and breaking several ribs at least. Um, and I had to kind of nurse my my ribs for about six weeks, and that was the longest I'd been at home and that I can remember. I've, On the one hand, it's been kind of strange for me uh, uh, on the other hand, you know, it's been rewarding. I've had more time in my day. Uh, you know, the, the constant travel meant that I was, I found, always found it difficult to establish a, a work routine. 
um, on anything more than my New Yorker pieces. And I had a kind of pattern of activity worked out for those. But if I, you know, for book writing or anything else, it meant that I was constantly living a kind of fragmented life. Um, so this has helped me establish more of a routine. But it's taken, you know, it's taken a, a, quite an effort of will to get used to it. Well, um, when you were when you were a kid traveling so extensively, um, I wonder, like, what what reached you then? What influenced you at that time in terms of books, writers, film, art? You know, I think my, you know, like most people, my primary influences were my parents. In the case of my parents, they were. Pretty unusual people. My father was, like I said, in the Foreign Service, and that immediately conjures up the image of a kind of, you know, button-down Brooks Brothers diplomat. Not really. Uh, he was, uh, he was, formally speaking, an agricultural advisor. Uh, some people have always thought he was a spook. I don't think he was, but he was. That was his formal job. He had diplomatic passport. We lived in a lot of places that later. Just before we were there, or just after we left, became hotspots of the Cold War. But he was a—he was an adventurer. He left high school and went and and spent three and a half years or four years in the South Pacific, just adventuring, uh, and happened to be in Pearl Harbor when the Japanese attacked. But he's been in you know wow. New Caledonia and Tahiti and all these places, and then spent another four years at war, and only then went to. Um, university, met my mother, and they went to Trinidad, to Haiti, and to El Salvador before I was even born. And so um, uh, having one daughter and adopting another before before I was born. And then we went to, you know, to um, <clears throat> Korea, Colombia, Taiwan, and Indonesia. Along the way, my mother wrote children's books and published them, and we were very proud of her. And she inculcated this love of books uh, and the importance of books in us. And both of them were very, um, they were politically liberal and they were, um, you know, they were colorblind. So I, I also adopted children from other races. I have a Taiwanese sister and a Costa Rican sister. And we were very aware of our polyglot appearance wherever we went and, and it was but it was only when we returned to the US that I became aware of racism you know we I wasn't sensitized to it before that um, so um, it's been much on my mind these last few days with the Black Lives Matter because one of the first things I remember doing at the age of 11 was them taking me to the Poor People's Campaign Solidarity Day in June 1968 uh, uh, after the killing of another black man, you know, Martin Luther King. Um, so it all feels like history coming in a big circle to me. Um, my mother, like I said, um, uh, you know, basically stimulated any creative urges we had and encouraged us. Um, you know, some of the girls aren't writers, they were dancers, or one of them is very artistic. And my brother and myself uh, became writers, my brother Scott, who lives in New York. And our sister Michelle also, you know, has, she's very creative, has many talents, has written also. 
um, you know, became involved in dance and theater and, and other um, disciplines. And so it was in the, you know, it was in the blood. It was in the family blood. It was, so I grew up with an idea that I would be a, whatever I did, I would write somehow. Um, and um, I was never sure what sort of writing that would take. I went through probably a lot of the usual patterns of of people who, who write. Uh, you know, I was a, a, a craven poet as an adolescent. I wrote some pretty gauche short stories in my late teens, early 20s. I didn't die. I wasn't dying to become a journalist, but I, I, I always said I fell into it as a way to fuse my abilities um, and live the life I wanted. But primarily, I, I grew up wanting to be an explorer and um, sort of thinking that the world was still the way it was in the in the books I read about explorers and, and the biographies of of, uh, of extraordinary, mostly men, whom I admired and whose lives I wanted to, if not emulate directly, wanted to live a similar life, you know, of, of confronting the confronting danger, confronting fear, overcoming it, seeing the original world before it disappeared. And as I became, uh, as my eyes began to open a little bit at the age of sort of 10, 11, 12, and I became aware that the world was changing and changing fast, uh, this set off in me uh, 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 an almost unquenchable uh, desire to uh, to live life as soon as I could. And so from about that age onwards, I began going off uh, as much as they could. My parents tried to control it, coordinate it, make sure I didn't get killed. But um, as I grew up, um, I became more and more <clears throat> headstrong. And so I had a series of very, very early <clears throat> uh, misadventures, you could say, um, as a result of this, and not not because I was a tearaway particularly, but because I just simply didn't um, recognize uh, the limits or respect the limits of age. And so, when I was uh, when I was when we left the states in '68 after a really unhappy year there because of Martin Luther King's murder and then Robert F. Kennedy's and the rioting. It was just an awful place to to come to the United States at that point. Um, my father was assigned to Indonesia, and I was excited about this, <clears throat> and um, very excited. And uh, at the time, I really wanted to be a naturalist, and uh, um, I had uh, been a volunteer taxidermist at the Smithsonian <laughs> Museum of Natural History that summer, and the head mammal curator, I guess he thought I was a precocious little geek and he he you know he um he gave me traps to take with me to 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 Indonesia to to get study specimens for them and I was reading you know Gerald Durrell and people like that and um when we got to Indonesia um we ended up having to be evacuated to Singapore we had, you know I nearly died we had a, a rare strain of of a kind of really virulent dysentery and and um, and and my father eventually, you know, after only six months in Indonesia, quit the job um, because it was it was one thing after the other, both going to Indonesia and returning, 
he let me stay on a ranch in the outback in Australia for several weeks each time in the hopes that this would placate um, through an old war buddy of his who had married an Australian girl and moved there and had become an Australian forest ranger, Uncle Red. And these were great experiences, but um, I was bitterly disappointed about coming back to the States. I didn't want to come back. And when we got to California, I ran away. So I ran away uh, planning to go up into the high Sierra and live off the wilderness, you know, <laughs> as one does. <laughs> I had just turned 12, and we was, it was in the pit stop, you know, between Jakarta uh, and Washington. We were staying a few days as relatives in the area, you know. So an all-point bulletin went out, and police caught me just as I was heading into the forest at the edge of this national park. And, you know, I was taken back in some ignominy to my parents. And we, we proceeded to Washington, and I was in, under a bit of a cloud. <clears throat> and uh, later in the year, I ran away again. Um, this time, I was going to live inside the Museum of Natural History, <laughs> <laughs> which, because I had been this, you know, taxidermist, I knew all about the ins and outs and how to go behind the exhibit and all of that. And, and uh, to cut a long story short, I was caught again. And, and, that, and so they really didn't know what to do with me and proposed that I go and live with uh, my mother's brother, my uncle, Warren, who was a geologist living in Liberia. And I left at that. They said, would you like to go and live with Uncle Warren for a year? So I did that. And Africa, for me, was a great, you know, a great uh, liberation. I, you know, I did, I lived with my aunt and uncle. They're quite outdoorsy um, and have been there for several years. Um, I went to the international school, um, but I would I started going into the bush with their cook, quite into the bush, and I saw I had a glimpse of an Africa that was are you know dying out, uh, an Africa of um, footpaths and uh, bush devils, and um, you know really the same Liberia that Green saw you know 35 years before. Uh, there were even still elephants in the interior, um, and um, uh, I, and they allowed me to go to East Africa in a kind of what was supposed to be staying with friends who were either in the Peace Corps or AID or something in the various capitals. But once I got there, I took off, and I basically spent two months on the lamb <laughs> just after my 14th birthday, having the time of my life. I have to say, you know, it was great. I uh, <clears throat> I did a lot. And, uh, you know, um, look, I could go on in this fashion. The point is that by the age of 14, I had I had a, a, a you know, a, a taste of the real world, the world I had craved, the world I had been taught to dream of in books. And I was grabbing it while it was still there. And, you know, I, I never really looked back, but it made my my life of returning um, difficult because I was, you know, I would have to return to the family, go to where, where we were living at the time in whatever high school or at the time it wasn't even high school, it was middle school uh, that I was um, assigned to. And, you know, the kids my own age were 
they were caught up in other things, I was going to say. Uh, and so, you know, um, it went on from there. And it went on from there. I had many kind of coming-of-age experiences over the next decade or so. Um, and by the end of which, um, you know, I I began writing and, and became a journalist. Um, um, you know, after I'd had quite a few adventures or experiences on my own, not all of them ones I had set out to find. I, um, I, in my early 20s, I, mid-20s, I, I felt that to complete my personal education, I needed to experience war. And so that led me to Central America, which at the time was, you know, as you know, um, a hub of conflict in the latter end of the Cold War. El Salvador, Nicaragua, Guatemala were all having bloody civil wars. And that's where I really cut my teeth um, as a reporter. And um, although, like I say, I, sorry, like I said, I didn't really set out planning to be a journalist. I, well into my 20s, I, I, was, I was exploring every possibility, you know, from fiction to poetry to, I kept diaries, um, I even took pictures for a long time. Um, hmm. um, but in the end, you know, you do what you can make a living at, and it became journalism. So, hmm. so I did that, um, and um, and 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 I think you know there was a there was a whole learning process once I was in the field and doing it, uh, because you know I didn't necessarily feel fulfilled by what I saw come out in the magazines or newspapers that I worked for, what they wanted from me was never the story that I was seeing. And so, um, you know, after a couple of years in El Salvador, for time, I'm sort of fast forwarding this. Um, I went off with my brother, Scott, to write a book um, about, you know, the wars around the world. <laughs> and that led us up into our sort of book writing career. Uh, instead of becoming a naturalist, I became someone who understood violence, organized violence, and, and uh, war, and that became something I, you know, something I did. Um, um, but authors, you asked about, and films, um, you know, at various times, um, I mean, Hemingway was, as I know he was for you, so I've read you know, he, he was an early influence because of the life he lived. He didn't just write and write beautifully. He lived life. You know, he experienced, he lived it to the full. Now, the way he lived it nowadays is often frowned upon, but the point about him, as with other people, not all of them writers, uh, that, that I admired uh, was that they experienced everything you could possibly experience. And that became, for me, the kind of, uh, the way I wanted to live my life. So I, hmm. I, I leaned towards explorers and, um, you know, people who, uh, you know, uh, boxed and shot and rode and climbed and sailed. And, and you know, 
these were the people I was fascinated by, whether it was Teddy Roosevelt uh, or Henry Morton Stanley, and then in, in, that, in that realm, Richard Burton, the explorer. And then in the world of, of writing, I found it very difficult to read people whose lives I couldn't admire. And this began when I was very young. Hmm. You know, I, if, if they just sat behind a desk and then died eventually, I found it very difficult to relate to them. If they had they lived at the time of a great war but not participated in it, I felt deeply disappointed. Well, I'm very curious to ask, I mean, my father and I have a complete divergence on that issue. I'm very much like you. I I want to know the biography of these people immensely after falling in love with the work. Sometimes I'll read the biography before the great works of these writers. He doesn't care at all about the biography or who the person is. He, he wants just the work. And I was thinking the other day doing a profile about somebody who was extensively a con man for about a decade and then used the same skills to win the Booker Prize with their first book. And I thought, isn't it interesting that every magician starts off as a hustler, but at a certain point, deceiving the person as an act, you put a smile on their face as you get paid for doing the same thing that you were ripping them off and they wanted to take your head off. <laughs> it's 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 just curious to me why we need to know the the man behind the curtain or the woman behind the curtain. Um, Martha Gellhorn is a great example for me, also as a war correspondent, because the chances she took were just so extraordinary. Mm. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's another one. You're right. Um, you know, I. Um, I don't know at what point that began, but um, I have no doubt that that's the way it's always been for me. Um, and so I've noticed, too, that in my reporting life, the kind of people that I end up falling in with or who trust me and open, who talk to me, who unburden themselves with me, tend to be people um, who have a lot to talk about and who don't necessarily trust the world of reporters, and, but who are sort of living the life, you know what I mean? And very often it's, it's close to the moral, it's close to some or, or even actually on some kind of moral quicksand, usually to do with violence. I, I wonder, obviously, as the author of the definitive biography on Che Guevara, where he came to play, like when he entered your awareness and what role, I mean, I think Sartre called him the most complete human being of the 20th century. I mean, so full of complexity and nuance. I think the CIA said that he was rather intellectual for a Latino as well. Yeah. So I would love to I would love to hear about embarking on that journey of documenting one of the most complex figures in the 20th century and um and and just sure. what you thought that would be and what obstacles you you faced doing it how it contrasted maybe with shorter profiles other places that you've published but I mean a huge book a tome on yeah such an elusive figure yeah. 
you know, um, growing up as I did in mostly in Asia, um, I, be, I started my world, you know, probably began opening up. I, I was aware of, uh, I became aware of the world, you know, looking over my father's shoulder at the Stars and Stripes newspaper or listening to uh, the radio, which I think was Armed Forces Radio, which broadcast to Americans overseas. At any, in any case, I, I remember the day Che died, or that is to say, the day after. His picture was in the paper. And it was the picture of him that so many, one of the pictures so many have seen of him shirtless, you know, laid out on a plinth with people looking at him. It's, it's the one where there are men with peaked cap, military men looking at the ones poking at him. And what struck me and shocked me about the image was probably the first time that I'd seen a picture of a dead person on mm. the front of a newspaper. And it was also uh, uh, un, uh, disquieting because they weren't mourning him. I could see that. You know, he, there was some, there's something unusual about that photograph because on the one hand, they're looking at him with a certain amount of respect, but you're aware that they're not his friends. They're not mourning him. And so, and he looks at what, what you know, inarguably in, is in most of our minds, the image of Christ as well. Right. So, so I remember asking who this man was, and I can't remember the words afterwards my father spoke, but he, he wasn't overly censorious, I remember. I think he gave me a kind of neutral explanation of who this man was and what was happening in that scene. And, and you know, enough said, from that moment on, I was aware of Che Guevara at the age of 10. Now, so I'm a little bit younger than the, the, that generation, six, seven, eight, ten years older than me, who, you know, quote-unquote, had his poster on their dorm room wall. I wasn't part of that generation that was, uh, that threw themselves willy-nilly into the ideologies of the 60s. I, I, I grew up one beat behind them, and therefore just a little more cynical, um, I think. Um, um, uh, you know, somewhat incredulous about any, about any overly fervent belief. But when I found myself in Latin America, you know, in a, a decade or so, going to Latin America in the seven or eight years of my, you know, later, uh, even before my reporting life, it began adventuring around in the 70s and then later in the early 80s as a reporter, this is the world that Che left behind. This is the world where the guerrillas that he helped stimulate or inspire, or in some cases get going, then began fighting their wars. And the, and the world I began seeing and covering as a young reporter was the world which the U.S. then in the Reagan era was trying to finally wipe out in the, in the end of the Cold War. And so I became aware of Che as this figure who had, had endured as a source of inspiration and emulation to these young revolutionaries whom I began meeting in mountains or the jungle of Latin America. And, um, uh, you know, I took note of this, that he was a kind of secular saint, an apostle for them. He had lived the ideal life for the revolutionaries, a life of bravery, honesty, self-sacrifice and devotion to the cause, which are precisely the qualities you need if you're going to take a gun, 
for an ideal and tell yourself, I'm going to kill or die for this reason. He was the man. Right. And I became more and more fascinated by him in the course of my writing assignments. You know, I went off, as I told you, with my brother to write a book about wars around the world. He then, at the end of that, we're now talking in the mid, uh, sort of, 88, 89, that period, uh, the Cold War is winding down, but it's, you know, the wall hasn't come down yet. My brother went off to write a novel after that book, and I went off to write yet another book about war. I wrote a book about guerrillas, which took me all over the world, living with different guerrilla groups, as just before and just after, for about the, the, that four years, end of the 80s and early 90s, as the world was changing, I was hanging out with guerrillas. And in every place I went, Che was either a source of inspiration, he was a kind of, uh, as I say, a saint, or they were studying his guerrilla how-to manual mm. uh, still. And I, and, I began, and I asked myself, at, at some point it clicked, and I said, wow, you know, Che Guevara, he's still alive, he's still out there. I'm, what do I really know about him? You know, he, he's, he'd been this poster boy. You know, he'd been that iconic figure. And, and so I started trying to find out more about him and realized, and now we're now talking right around 1990 or so, that I knew very little. And in fact, most of his life, you know, he died at 39. The end of his life was still cloaked in secrecy. Um, he had lived, apparently, this public life, but yet a lot of it was covert. And just as I became interested, the world began to change. And so the area that was was still seen as military intelligence by a lot of his co-religionaries now entered the domain of history or journalism. And so as I embarked on the book, I finally decided this was the guy. He was the incarnation of the kind of individual whose motivations and whose, uh, you know, whose, yeah, his motivations and willingness to sacrifice themselves had so fascinated me uh, in this book. First in the book about wars around the world, then this uh, book of mine about revolutionaries, about guerrillas, and now, now he was the incarnation of all of these people. And so as I said about researching his life and, you know, going to Cuba and then from Cuba, living in Cuba and then going on from there, you know, I was able to talk to people who had never spoken before. They had never spoken in 30 years or, uh, you know, at all, uh, and but finally opened up to me. So I had that, I had that, you know, a rare uh, moment of opportunity in which, you know, I managed to convince enough people to open up to me uh, who were very close to him, uh, including his widow and other people, who, men who fought with him, that um, that made that allowed me to finally understand who he was and get past the poster. Well, I have a couple questions about Che that have always interested me. Um, what do you make a uh, of how capitalism has metabolized Che? That his image has been the most reproduced image in human existence, somebody who was so at all <laughs> seemingly everything to do with capitalism. Um, and, and similarly, um, I found the symmetry when I was myself learning about Cuba between Che being the CIA's most dangerous man alive and 
one of the last times that I was in Cuba before the uh, Obama visit was the day that Osama bin Laden was was executed. And he occupied the same role that Che did. And it made me think, Che yeah. is on record as saying he was for nuclear weapons being used specifically on New York. And I just thought, I wonder how bin Laden 50 years from now how he is going to change. Like, can he be turned into kitsch in the same way that Che has for so many people? So I just yeah. wondered about that parallel and also that a lot of the legacy of Che now for most of the world is just an image. Sure, yeah. No, absolutely, uh, it's true. You know, there are these paradoxes with Che. I mean, I, I always like to bring up, you know, his embracing the nuclear cloud <laughs> Um, statement and trotting that out for, you know, milky-eyed romantics. And usually I just get a blank, startled look. Uh, hmm. You know, they, 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 that's not the Che they want to remember or have been told about. Uh, the, point, the point is, is that, as I said, he went through a doctrinaire and radical phase. I mean, fortunately, I think, probably for him and for the world, it remained at the rhetorical level. In his oratory, he, he went really far. And, and, but remember, he was also on the record as being against terrorism. And, 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 and in Bolivia, his final episode, you know, he abstained from killing people that, um, you know, in, in more recent times, people would have shot, whether it was a, a young army troops who were within his rifle sites that were you know, peeing at the side of the road. Uh, he he couldn't bring himself to, to kill them. He did not kill people he believed to be informers, that, you know, in fact, they were. And if he had been uh, in, his, in his more severe phase, he probably should have executed them, because that's what you do with informers in a war when your own survival and those of the people with you are at stake. He didn't do that. My it's my instinct. I can't say this for sure that the severe Che we saw in the Sierra Maestra, where who carried out executions, and then in La Cabaña afterwards, when the you know when the when Havana fell and several hundred Batistianos were put up against the wall after summary trials, and he was the supreme prosecutor, that that had somehow ebbed in him that urge to be the holy avenger. Now, I mean, we'll never know he died. And, of course, you know, he may have wanted, rhetorically speaking, to embrace the nuclear cloud, but, you know, fortunately he didn't, uh, and nobody else did either. Fast forward to bin Laden, the analogies are extraordinary. You know, one man from a well-born man in another country with college education decides to fight the empire. He, he, he also identifies the United States as the ultimate uh, repository of evil on earth and vows to go to war against it launches attacks goes on the on the run the empire looks for him for years in the case of bin laden he eludes them a lot longer eventually he's tracked down and killed the huge difference between che and bin laden was that bin laden you know, was was one their philosophy their guiding philosophy and two uh their methodology you know 
bin Laden wasn't looking to create new socialist path. He wanted to institute a what would have been an ISIS-style halifat on Earth to restore the Earth to some imagined uh, place where it had been uh, 10 centuries before in which you know, women were slaves and men had their heads chopped off in public squares, much, as, much like they are in the land he grew up in, Saudi Arabia. Right. And, 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 and he was um, a sectarian who, was, um, who believed in medieval uh, hatred, uh, um, closer in, in, in that sense to the Nazis who were willing to exterminate entire groups of people who were different racially or, in the case of bin Laden, because of creed, uh, uh, in order to have a purer world. You know, he was more of a genocide there in that sense. You know, so I'm, it sounds like a defensive chain, and in a sense it is, but it's also an awareness of the analogy. I was very, very, I noticed the difference. When bin Laden died, in fact, I wrote something comparing the two. Um, but it's always been thus with Jay, the kind of callow association of him with beauty or humanistic ideals or the romantic rebel or, you know, the poster boy, whatever it is, has, has been there since he died. And mm. it kind of comes and goes. Um, if we can pivot to something that's a little unusual, but it's fascinated me for the last four years, which is... Um, the first bullfight I ever saw happened to be a young guy named Jose Tomas in Madrid in 1998. And the next yeah. time I was able to see him was in January of 2016. And there was a, a New Yorker writer who was also there. I, I learned interviewing one of Tomas's photographers, Carlos Casales, and it was you. <laughs> And I thought, how on earth does John Lee Anderson have this as one of his obsessions? Isn't he busy enough with everything he does that he's obsessed with Jose Tomas and he's here? I would love to hear what you were doing. Which, which, which yeah. Torino was it? Sorry, was it the one in Barcelona or Valencia? Mexico City. Oh, was, uh, oh okay. Well, um, the first bullfight I ever saw was when I was about 20 in, uh, in Ecuador. Um, mm. And uh, I'll never forget it. It was in this small Andean mountain town of Ambato. Uh, and there were three bullfighters, as there often are in Corridas, uh, who each had to kill two bulls that day. And one was an Ecuadorian, one was a Colombian, and one was a Mexican called El Carnicerito, the little butcher. And um, <laughs> what I remember was that um, I'd never seen one before. I'd read about bullfights, mostly in Hemingway and a few other writers, mostly of Spain. And I was determined to see this last of blood rituals still being played out in public as a public spectacle for myself. The first opportunity I had was it Ambato Hector. So I... And, um, I remember that El Carnicerito was a, a very short guy very flamboyant, um, and uh, yet on his second bull, he missed several times the uh, the plunge, the fatal plunge, and um, was told by the judges that he had to pardon the bull, uh, bull's life, and he 
it was, you know, full of gesture and ritual, and he he honored the decision and um, knelt down and bowed to the bull who was, you know, streaming blood. And, and I felt that this was, you know, an extraordinary gesture full of drama and uh, chivalry in a way that had disappeared from the modern world, and I remained fascinated by it. I was disturbed by the banderilleros, the kind of bleeding of the bull that, that precedes the, you know, the, the coup de grace and uh, the estaca. Uh, and I was disturbed by the fact that very often, uh, you know, one of the men with a butcher knife had to come out and end it um, because the bulls weren't, weren't cleanly killed. But the, uh, the act of valor exhibited by the matadors at the end um, and the, the idea that they had an equal chance of survival with the bull was to me an extraordinary thing to witness. And, and it's something, as, as I said, that had largely disappeared from the, from the modern world and seemed a direct link to the ancient past. And so I felt as though I was watching living history. And, and I, although I never overcame my, some of my qualms about bullfighting, I became very interested in it. And I followed up, uh, Whenever I was in a city that had bullfighting and I would attend one, I wouldn't say I became an aficionado in the way that some people do where they you know, know all the terminology and all the bullfighters. I came and went from it a little bit like I have over the year in my relationship to boxing, not as close a relationship as you, but nonetheless fascinated by some of the same characters. And I would say for, for the same reasons. The mm-hmm. idea of a duel um, that could take you to death is, is an extraordinary thing. And it was so much a part of um, uh, the reality of the ancient world, and it's something we've largely expunged from the modern world, so that when you see it before your eyes and you know it for what it is, it, you know, it, it's an extraordinary thing, and it, speaks, it has always spoken to me. So, uh, you know, Fast forward through time, we're going now from the late 70s in the case of uh, Ambato, Ecuador, to, you know, by a, a few bullfights over the years in Colombia, Spain, here and there, um, I was aware of, you know, the coming and going of the greats of the death of Paquiri in the, uh, the 80s, you know, the, uh, the sons of El Cordobés, uh, the the, the rise of the young Juli in the 90s in Spain and so on. Um, uh, but I was, you know, all over the world. I was in the Middle East. I was in Africa. So it wasn't until 2009, I believe it was, I was invited to Cadiz to speak. Um, and after an event there, um, Cadiz, Spain, uh, I I was asked, I was approached by a, a young guy who turned out to be Carlos Casales, who asked me if, I, if I'd ever um, heard of Jose Tomas. And, it, and anyway, our relationship and our friendship began like that. And, um, I, and we, you know, we, we went, we had a drink and we talked and we had a few friends in common. Carlos is an unusual guy. He's a, Frank, he's a Spanish-Mexican that is to say, he has both bloods. He comes from a family of bullfighters, and he is a photographer, and, and as well as quite a, a philosopher. He's someone in a, with, a, with a kind of spiritual quest that has never really ended. 
that's as important to him as photography. And at the time he was, he spoke about his long-standing relationship with bullfighting, his fascination, in particular with Jose Tomas. He talked to me about the polemics surrounding him, and he invited me to go with him to see Jose Tomas fight in El Monumental, the iconic last bullfighting ring in Barcelona. Um, uh, about a month later, as I think I think it was, and that his father, who had been a bullfighter himself and the manager of a bullfight ring and the son of a bullfighter, would also be there and could sit with me and explain what was going on. And, and that's what happened. So before mm-hmm. I get to El Monumental, I should just say that there was something about the way Carlos approached me and um, talked to me about Jose Tomas that struck a chord, and it had to do with this idea of, uh, you know, a small breed of men who, for reasons that seemed arcane to the modern world, in the modern world, and to the public at large, face death on the, you know, as a, as a, as a course, as, as their profession. And, you know, I, at the time, I, you know, I was um, very much a war correspondent. I had been covering the wars in Afghanistan, followed by Iraq, you know, everyone else, every other conflict going for the past decade and longer, but intensively during the 2000s. And, um, you know, part of my interest in going to war as a journalist uh, has always been this idea of observing uh, uh, people engaged in political violence and how they behave why they do it and how it becomes a, a kind of compulsion and sets up a new set of rules and almost its own morality. Um, and, and so I guess, you know, I don't mean to be too highfalutin about it, but I guess I could say that I was a kind of lifelong student of violence in many of its forms. And so bullfighting had remained at the periphery of my interest and my imagination because it was somehow in the entertainment world, but this opportunity with Carlos uh, resonated with me and I immediately said yes and arranged to to go. And so it was that I found myself in El Monumental in Barcelona um, some weeks later, sitting with his father, who, you know, uh, there he was, a former bullfighter. The first time I'd had that opportunity someone who was able to really explain to me gently what was going on and uh, the logic of certain actions and rituals that I had only ever been uh, dimly aware of or, or, or knew through literature or observation. So it was, it was extraordinary. Jose Tomas was a controversial figure among some bullfighters I knew bec- uh, from them because he, as they say, he stood too close to the bull. He, he mm-hmm. stood much more close to the bull when the bull came out. He didn't move the same way that tr- many bullfighters had traditionally. So, therefore, there was a school of bullfighters who, who saw him as a kind of showy arriviste, you know, that he took, he, he took undue chances. But when I saw him, and, and so I didn't know how to judge that until I saw him. And what I saw was a was this slight figure of a man in his mid thirties then, you know, very very slender. Um, if you saw him on the street, you know, dressed in ordinary clothes, he would 
be kind of nondescript. He's so slim and slender and not very tall. Uh, you know, he, he doesn't look powerful or anything. Uh, but in, dressed in his traje de luces and his matador's uh, outfit and standing there as this six or 700 kilo beast of hoof and muscle and horn comes thundering down at him and not moving uh, was just extraordinary to see. He would, he 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 went into a kind of. It sounds it's facile to say it, but a kind of a zen, I guess, would situation or state would be the best way to describe it to a layman who hasn't seen a bullfight. And he wouldn't jump out of the way. He would barely move his body, and he would dance in that way as the bull came and once and again at him in the first plastic, you know, the first times the bull was in the ring. And it was just really extraordinary to watch. And again, because it was a competition between other bullfighters, I had the opportunity to, to see how he behaved in relationship to the others who usually did jump out of the way or at least um, stand further away from the bull, procure to not be so close to those horns when it came thundering at them. Um, he was also the least of the showy matadors, by which I mean to say he was very austere in his body languages and his appearance. When he killed the bull, there would be a brief acknowledgement of his victory, so to speak, but he didn't exult and he didn't um, and he didn't play to the crowd in the same way. He was very it was very much about him and the bull, and he seemed to me a purist, and so I became despite myself and despite everything I'd heard and despite the fact that I knew that by now bullfighting in Spain was also something that was becoming a very political tool and that the far right in many cases in Spain was the lobby that most championed this blood sport and was trying to see it abolished. I nonetheless found myself, you know, uh, fascinated and, um, particularly fascinated by Jose Tomas. And um, I determined to follow up with Carlos in seeing whatever other bullfights I could uh, that Jose Tomas um, took part in. And, um, you know, and I realized that this was all happening at a very fast, uh, you know, a very key moment in time when, uh, unbeknownst to me right then, bullfighting was about to be abolished in that part of Spain, in Catalonia, the electoring city council had um, taken office, and that was the last bullfight in El Monumental. And it was turned into a shopping center, uh, you know, in subsequent years. And I still remember the building because there it was in modern, you know, a modern city with apartment buildings around it, Porte Iglesias, and you know, traffic. And there was this extraordinary building, about a hundred years old, round made of uneven brick, but this beautiful um, blue and white um, uh, 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 pieces of um, azulejo, of, of tile work as, uh, as accents on the building, and then on the uh, crenellations on the top with these sort of Dali-esque uh, uh, eggs made from this egg-like Imagine giant Fabergé eggs at the top of this 
crenellated, rather primitive-looking round building. And, you know, this was a, a place of a, a place where duels to death took place. Where inside, you know, there was sand that was mixed with blood. And, you know, it's it just an extraordinary thing that still existed in the city. And I was so sad to hear uh, uh, about its, you know, being turned into, you know, another temple of and and although I understood, and I do understand the compulsion uh, to um, by some people to um, you know to oppose fighting with the sport and the unnecessary suffering it causes to these animals and so on. At the same time, I understand the argument made by those who seek to keep it as you know, much as you hear with hunters in the United States saying, "Without us, you wouldn't have national parks." That's true, and you have to give one thing for the other. It's, because without the bulls, you wouldn't have these huge stretches of glorious open countryside we've all seen in Spain, um, which are, you know, the 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 which are the wildernesses where the wild bulls are are allowed to to roam free until the day they're caught and brought to a bull ring. So, you know, it's 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 very much no pun intended, very much a double-edged sword. This whole argument, and I found myself increasingly drawn in to the idea of doing something, documenting this in some way that I could write for the New Yorker or maybe a small book, something with Carlos um, that, that would allow me to also explore this, this, this idea of um, ritualized death as a kind of parallel to the world I was living in places like in the Middle East where real-life wars were taking place. So um, we followed up. Um, I mean, not long after that, I forget the exact date now, but Jose Tomas was terribly gored and nearly died in uh, Aguas Calientes in Mexico, where he also had a a home and a and a um, a, a place where uh, he raised bulls and practiced. And he um, he was outside of the you know he 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 was he was out of the game for I think the better part of a year, if not longer. And um, Carlos contacted me to let me know uh, that he was going to have a return. Um, uh, he was going to return to the ring in Valencia. And um, I flew to Valencia to be there for this uh, duel. And it was, uh, it was quite an extraordinary one. I still remember this time I wasn't sitting in the stand. I was down with Carlos and a handful of other people uh, Two or three other photographers and um, and the the staff, the closest staff to the matador, who if you've been to a bullfight, you see them standing behind those those wooden platforms in front of the corridor that goes around the ring. And so I was, I had a, literally a ground side view of the entire uh, thing. Hmm. And um, Huli was one of the El Huli, uh, the young, very young bullfighter, was one of the bullfighters there that day. I met him at one point, and um, uh, uh, in his first, in the first bull, as I recall, uh, uh, Jose Tomas was thrown into the air and landed like a like a rag doll. Uh, the the sight of seeing a man thrown by a bull is not different, not much different. It's equally violent and as unexpected as seeing someone in a car crash. 
you, you, you never really quite can believe it until you see it, how a car can just crumple and how quickly a body can be twisted and thrown, at, you know, at anything over 30 or 40 miles an hour. And it's always a terrible sight. The same is true in a bullfight. He was bull just picked him up and threw him. He must have gone, I don't know, eight feet in the air and landed, it seemed to me, on his head. And the bull started digging in, and we couldn't know or see if the bull has had piercing him with his horns or not, but he was giving it to him hard, and he was on the ground, and the men ran out and essentially rescued Jose Tomas. It was, and you could see... They took him back to one of these uh, wooden uh, blinds, and he was very unsteady on his feet. The bull was chased off. He was there, out there, and it wasn't sure uh, whether Jose Tomas would be able to proceed. And about 10 minutes went by, as I recall. And um, it was, you know, it was very dramatic. And um, we saw people attending to him. I was maybe 100 feet away. I couldn't really see the exact details of what was going on. Uh, but then he emerged. And, you know, there he was, um, and um, he killed that bull. And he killed him cleanly and uh, nobly, and the bull went down, and he treated it with great respect. And I thought to myself, this is bullfighting. This Mm -hmm. is what I wanted to see. This is the real deal. Here a man is risking his life uh, one-on-one with the bull. Um, And... um, and it was the uh, probably one of the finest uh, duels I've ever seen, I think. And and it had to do with him also being thrown, nearly being killed, after nearly being killed a few months earlier, and then coming back and killing it cleanly with great economy of movement, without showmanship, uh, and just an extraordinary moment. And that evening after the bullfight, um, uh, through Carlos and other friends whom I met as um, part of the entourage, uh, 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 Jose Tomas called me to his room in the hotel uh, in Valencia where he was staying. And um, I was very excited that day. Hmm. And um, I waited outside uh, uh, for a moment. He had some kind of, um, you know, some people there. Um, and um, and uh, they left, and he, I came in, and he was uh, he was much as he was in the ring. Um, he called me into his bedroom and and um, into his room. It was a suite, a glass window overlooking Valencia, and there was a kind of living room area without much of a separation. You could see the bed and and lamps next to the bed, and he gestured over to the lamp by his bed, and I could see one of my books, there, and it was one called, um, in Spanish, it was a really an anthology of pieces called uh, Dictadores y Demonios. It was, you know, it was an anthology of some of my New Yorker pieces. And he looked at me kind of wryly and he said, you've got a thing about death, don't you? Huh. <laughs> and he said it with this kind of half smile. Like, you know, because a lot of the pieces, of course, are about violence, just what I've been doing, but and he just looked at me. He stood very close to me, I remember. He stood very close. I was, like, powered over him. Um, and he, he, he stood very close to me in a kind of intimate way. And he looked at me and said, you've got to think about death, don't you? And I said, oh, what are you talking about? 
you're the one who's thinking about death. That's what I wanted to talk to you about. <laughs> and he laughed. You know, he laughed very, uh, he laughed knowingly. And, uh, you know, I once saw a map. Uh, it, it was, I think it was a map made of his body. Um, and it was a good five or six years before I met him. So, uh, you know, he was mid-career. Uh, and he, um, it showed the number of places he'd been gored. And it was just incredible. There was not a part of his body that hadn't been pierced by a bull's horn. Um, you know, and you wondered how the hell he had survived. Um, this was even before the Aguas Calientes goring, and in which, as I recall, you know, his femoral artery was 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 pumping blood out. He would have bled out within minutes, very few minutes. And his man ran out and basically grabbed, stuck his fist into my side, into the open, huge wound, held the two parts of the artery together uh, in the most primitive way you can imagine, like literally plunging your fist into someone's open thigh and keeping his, the blood from pumping out until they got to the hospital. And um, Jose Tomas never lost consciousness despite losing you know, several pints of blood. And as I, as I was told later, he even soothed the doctors some of them were about to faint themselves at the sight of him. Um, you know, just a rather extraordinary figure. Um, so that's Jose Tomas and me and bullfighting. Uh, well, may I ask you a few questions about that? Because I, I remember Tomas teased sure. that he was now more Mexican than Spanish because of the amount of Mexican blood that he received from transfusions from that day <laughs> in Aguas Calientes. Um, I wonder for you, um, because I, I, I think we, the way your calibration of how you're experiencing it and, and some of your ambivalence and passion, I feel very similar about it now. I don't know. I've probably seen 50 bullfights, two with Jose Tomas, my first and, and my last. Um, but I... I wonder for people who can't understand it, one of the ways it's been put to me that I think is interesting is that we have about 60 billion animals raised in captivity each year to be slaughtered for our taste buds. We don't need to eat them, but we enjoy yeah. eating them. And these bulls are raised to be slaughtered for our artistic pleasure. And so many aficionados make the argument you cannot eat meat and, and be, be in opposition to what we're doing because of the glaring hypocrisy. Um, but I wonder, like, when I grapple with that, I mean, I don't want to kill an animal. I'm a huge animal lover. I'm, sure. I'm totally won over by bullfighting's power, I think, because to have Jose Tomas be the first one I saw, I saw it at a level which ruined all other sports that I was a fan of because what are the stakes in sports yeah. after you've seen yeah. Tomas? They're nothing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I totally agree with you. Yeah, yeah. Um, but on the, other, on the other level, what I wanted to ask you was when I've tried to get at the bottom of the mystery of his power, what 
my primary takeaway was uh, I wrote it in my journal the first time I watched him when I was 18. I just watched a man play Russian roulette in his own cemetery. <laughs> and and it is the pathos of suicide rather than murder that to me still I find chillingly fascinating to watch bullfighting at its highest level. A lot of the time it's awful to watch. Most bullfighting, like most boxing, is not exciting. It's not engaging. It doesn't inflame your emotions. It's like really bad opera or something. But at its highest level, I don't know anything else artistically that has competed, or not competed, but just made me feel so much about the, my own mortality, the mortality of everybody I know, this sort of existentialist, sense that almost feels metaphysical when I'm watching it, especially him. Um, I wonder if you could speak to that about for people that just look at it as uh, uh, I've, I've often thought all of the people who are against it are not wrong and all of the people who are also for it are not wrong. They're both telling the truth, which is part of what makes it so such a, a difficult argument <laughs> to, to engage in. I, it sounds like we have similar uh, feelings and similar uh, reactions and similar uh, quandaries. I, you know, that's why at one point I equated it to capital punishment. Um, I was only being part facetious in the sense that um, while I, am, you know, I'm a good, I wouldn't say I'm a good old-fashioned liberal. I'm, I'm, I'm someone who's ma made his own judgment in life and in many things in, in terms of social issues I'm on the liberal left but there are other there are issues in which I'm more of a realist uh, I guess you could say and and in and I occupy some positions that more properly would be in the within the realm of a conservative there's not many but there are some Capital punishment is one of them. I've, 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 you know, I've been, um, I've been in prison in my life. I've met, I've even been a prison guard. I've been at war. These are, these are, some, these are places in which you learn about human nature. And it's one thing to, um, uh, you know, espouse, um, you know, exclusively socially uh, humanistic views when you haven't come into contact with. Um, how should we eat people? Um, but uh, you know, as I said before, there are plenty of people that I think should be executed, and I absolutely mean that. On the other hand, I'm completely aware of the dangers of that and the ways the systems that do have places, that do have capital punishment, are, are abused. So long way of coming back to your question and this issue of... Um, of, of regulating our humanity, uh, you know, uh, towards towards animals in particular, you know, exactly. We live we live with so many contradictions, not to say hypocrisies, in our in our urban modern urban lives. Unless we become vegan, um, and people do, but m most people aren't, and you know, they live with the hypocrisy of cuddling their puppies. Uh, but um, uh, looking, you know, not not having to see the animal that they eat be raised, 
sometimes in terrible conditions, slaughtered, and for that matter, then chopped up for their consumption. Um, so, you know, bullfighting puts it right out there again. It's it's a challenge, I think, to to uh, people. Um, it doesn't exist so much in the Anglo-Saxon world as a concept. It, it's seen as the kind of exotic theater of the Latino world, you know, somehow, right? Mm-hmm. Because so much has been laundered out of our uh, our our society, and yet, if you watch, you know, if you watch sports or sports channels on American TV, there's all kinds of hyper violent stuff going on, from extreme boxing to kickboxing to, you know, all, you know, all manner of, of stuff. It, it lends itself to to such contemplative rabbit holes um, that are also fascinating. But I do yeah. I do want to get at well, two things. One is you mentioned that boxing had played a role. I have a similar ambivalent feeling toward boxing that I do with bullfighting. I think for similar reasons is that I think most of the people involved are masochistic rather than sadistic, which is, I think, the, the way it's kind of portrayed in the culture. Most of the boxers that I've spent time with um, are some of the gentlest people, for the most part, mm-hmm. you know, they come from a lot of violence, but it's almost like they're trying to work through that with boxing to get away from it on some of to find peace, which is not really how it's interpreted. Um, most of the time boxing, I remember with like Raging Bull, it, you, it took a Martin Scorsese that knew nothing about sports, nothing about boxing to slow it down, to make it slow motion, to, to put opera to it to mm-hmm. show something else that I think really spoke to boxers as opposed to the audience where um, it's always sped up. The music is fast. The editing is fast. It's exhilarating. Boxers, time slows down for them while they're doing yeah. it. Um, so I wanted to know how boxing came onto your radar. And sure. as a secondary question, how boxing and bullfighting for somebody who's career has been so tethered to war has assisted or informed your perspective about this broader theme of violence and death because and i don't mean to to drag this on i apologize but boxing was the first time that america watched a man beaten to death on television that's how they metabolized visually death for the first time with with emil griffith and Benny Perrette back in the early 60s before they watched the first murder with Lee Harvey Oswald and Jack Ruby. Um, So boxing has been very useful for America to process a lot of things with the sugarcoating of sports. We're not just talking about the issue, we're talking about it through sports with proxies and and, and that sort of thing. So uh, sorry for a long-winded question, but if if we could start with boxing on your radar and then these two forms of artistic ritualistic violence that may have informed some of your perspective um, with covering war and violence and death. Well, absolutely. You know, just before I launch into it, I remembered there was in, I think it was in, um, it was in Barcelona and I I had meant to include it in my description of Jose Tomas, but it Mm. speaks to, I'm prompted by what you said about how bullfighters and the books, as you've known, are more 
masochists than they are homicidists than they are murderers. And so there's just another another wrinkle to, to tease out from that first bullfight I witnessed, Jose Tomas, and one of the other uh, bullfighters was a guy called, if I'm not mistaken, it was Morante. But anyway, he there were three. And the, the point, there's a point to this uh, anecdote of bringing it back in this context. And, and you know, I, I spoke about how Jose Tomas stood very close to the bull and showed no emotion and, and no fear, more importantly, when the bull came thundering out. And if you've ever been close to bulls, if you can do the running of the bulls, let's say, the feeling of terror that one naturally feels when the bulls are coming towards you is, is, is you know, it's a, it's a physiological thing. It's very difficult not to feel absolute terror when they do. Um, and, and so his control is quite extraordinary to watch. Now, in one of the bull, bulls, with one of the bulls, this other older bullfighter um, had to face you know, by by co- in contrast to the way Jose Tomas uh, was behaving, this fellow showed fear, and I had never seen this degree of fear in a bullfighter before. Something happened where he, you know, here he was a very experienced bullfighter. He was almost a generation older. He was a little bit chubby. He was, you know, not that fit, but he had killed probably hundreds of bulls in his day. And something about his second bull spooked him. And he began jumping back, visibly, visibly, physically jumping backwards and flinching at the bull. And the crowd began to yell at him. And at a certain point, my heart went out to this guy because, um, you, you know, it was probably 2,000 people in the thing, including a lot of women. And they were openly ridiculing and questioning his masculinity. And when he finally left the ring, he left in humiliation, in complete ignominy, with his head hung low, walking out as 2,000 people called him every name under the sun. They questioned his, you know, his sexual preferences, his bravery, his manhood, and a lot of women were doing it too. And I thought, God Almighty, what other sport would involve this kind of humiliation? You know, I felt so terrible for the guy. But it was it was obvious that he had become terrorized by the bull, and he couldn't overcome it. By contrast, Jose Tomas was carried on shoulders around the ring, and all those same women who had, you know, you know who had humiliated his, his rival threw flowers and their scarves at him and called him, you know, guapo, <laughs> hombre, you know. You've got big ones, Jose Tomas. <laughs> it was just an extraordinary uh, theater. Uh, but so, you know, this idea of fear is key. And, and I think, you know, that, that's right. If you're going to face a bull, or for that matter, another man uh, prepared to pound you with, with his fist, you know, it, the key element here is overcoming fear. And yes, no doubt, there's some kind of, aggressive instinct that helps fuel you to be able to confront a, a murderous foe or a potentially murderous foe uh, with just your guile and, and physical ability 
but it's fear that you must overcome. And to put yourself in that situation is quite extraordinary. It does involve the, a willingness to put yourself in harm's way, and therefore you can lose your life as well. And um, you you know that when you see, now going over to boxers, when you see boxers, sure, you see the ones just before the match where they kind of you know rev themselves up, and there are some guys that are really aggressive, but most of it's show. And afterwards, very often, you know, there's there's exceptions. There's guys who have real feuds, but by and large, you know, the gentleman's conduct uh, pertains, and they shake hands, all the rest of it, and they 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 feel some camaraderie with others, even their foes, um, their greatest adversary. Um, uh, there's famous, uh, you know, camaraderies uh, like that, um, but which shows that it wasn't about hatred with them ever it wasn't about killing the other but it was certainly about putting oneself in harm's way so mm. that's the masochistic thing that you're talking about yeah can i can i ask you i asked this um early, early on when i began doing this series of interviews i interviewed um vice news and, and hbo's war correspondent ben anderson who's done a lot of good work with oh, his yeah. documentaries and and also his articles sure um, and I asked him about one of my favorite films, The Passenger, is a, a bit about, I don't know if you've seen it, from 1975, the Michelangelo Antonioni film starring Jack Nicholson. Does it ring a bell? Yeah, it does. And, you know, because you asked me about it at one point in an email earlier, and, you know, what? Mm. I, I, don't, I, don't, I haven't seen it in a way that I can talk about. I, I may mm. have at one point. But uh, not not enough for me to talk about it. Um, well, the the central the central reason I bring it up is just what I asked him was he came from a family of soldiers. Uh, most of his family had been to war, and he was um, growing up alongside a lot of people suffering from from PTSD. And now he is suffering from PTSD, not as a participant of war, but as an observer of war, as a chronicler. Mm-hmm. Of war, and I wondered for you, um, what was that line? I mean, one of the things you wrote to me that was one of the most memorable aspects of Che Guevara was that his inclusion in the revolutionaries initially was as a doctor, and at a certain point there was you can take your medical supplies or you can take your weapon and ammunition. You need to choose which is going to be of more use to this. And I wondered for you, was there a point of wanting to participate as opposed to witness the things that you, you chronicle, chronicle so, so eloquently. Before I became a journalist, I think I told you I was never really sure. I just, I knew that I wanted to write. Um, I, Mm. I also um, wanted to go to war and I hadn't resolved in what capacity. Mm. Um, You know, if I had, if I'd been born a few years earlier and my parents hadn't been so opposed to Vietnam, I might have gone because I wanted to see war, not because I approved of it, of that particular war. Mm-hmm. Um, I, um, by the time I went to war, I was in my um, 20s in Central America and I you know, began to see conflict or war in all of its forms from then on until now. And I... Um, 
the only time I've picked up a weapon um, in war, um, I've always stayed on the sidelines. I've been in many conflicts. Um, and uh, I've only ever picked up a weapon once. And it was uh, a very specific situation in which I, had, I was with um, Americans and Afghans, and we'd been repeatedly ambushed in 2007, and we were repeatedly ambushed over a period of hours and were in a kind of getaway uh, convoy at this point after I think four or five different episodes of ambush in the previous hours. And uh, I was in one, one uh, you know, uh, SUV um, driven by an American. There were two guys behind me, one an Afghan with a gun and another American, and there were Afghans in front of us. And as we went through this sort of rural village, mud walled, a lot of dust, we started taking fire. <clears throat> and old guy in the jeep in front was killed and came off the back of the truck, and our truck took fire. <clears throat> and the guy next to me was hit. Uh, just in the leg, he could, you know, it wasn't short initially, but he couldn't shoot at that point and, and drive, and he couldn't, um, and I didn't know exactly what was going on. And the fellow in the back was not in a state to fire, uh, <clears throat> so I took his gun and, um, you know, got it ready to shoot if I had to uh, out my window. Um, and... Um, the moment passed, we, we went through it. There was no opportunity, there was no need to for me to open fire. But my reaction was that of someone who, you know, was not going to be taken um, alive. You know, I wasn't going to go like a sheep. Yeah. Um, so, so um, and, and I had an opportunity to defend the lives of the people I was with. So it wasn't about soldiering or wanting to do, you know, it wasn't about any of that. It was just about, survival at that moment. <clears throat> Whoever was firing on us, you know, if they kept up, I was going to fire back because I didn't want us to get killed or captured. But, what else? So, but you know, I guess fortunately or, or yeah, fortunately, um, I didn't have to shoot it. And that's the only time as a journalist that I've, you know, crossed that line, so to speak. And I, and I, I just call it that line because for me, it was a no-brainer. It was not an ethical line at that point. It's, it's about survival, so you do what you've got to do. Do you think that there's and, been some emotional trauma for you from from all that you've seen with this this long career covering military con conflict? You know, um, look there. You you know you. Like a bullfighter, you know, you, you get gored if you bullfight, and, and you get scar tissue. Uh, if you go to wars a lot, you get scars. You get not, all, not everything scars over, so you, you carry open wounds, and that's more how I would describe it. And I think actually that's probably better, a better state to be in and be aware of it and be conscious of it and be able to talk about it um, than, to, uh, um, than to let it scar over and pretend it's not there. So because I write and because I talk, and I, you know, because I sought it out, I, I have, if I have some traumas or some, 
scars or some, you know, open scars, open wounds. These are things I sought out. These are things I'm not going <clears> to... <throat> these are things that uh, they come with the territory. And so, you know, yeah. Yeah, there's things that if I talk about, I get... Uh, I feel, you know, grief or sadness at remembering certain things. And I feel pain on with certain memories but you know what that's part of me too that's just that's the way it is and that's the way it should be um and so you know i'm i'm i would never sit in judgment of somebody else who says um they experience ptsd or or whatever and i have friends who have and i i recognize the symptoms i have not experienced that that kind of very pronounced, you know, withdrawing from society, growing a long beard, drinking a lot or whatever it is that, you know, there are certain commonalities, uh, not necessarily Baroque like that. But, you know, I have a few friends who've suffered uh, real trauma and had very serious debilitating effects from it, you know, and they've had to go to therapy and they've had to confront it and it's been a long process to rebuild themselves. And some of them, because some of them have been in much more horrific circumstances than I have. I've had the luck of being able to, you know, see a lot, but not have too many terrible things happen to me. Some very terrible things have happened to friends of mine, and that is what causes me the greatest pain. I think that's a similar uh, uh, consequence as what many soldiers f feel, which is very hard for people who haven't been to war to understand, really, because it doesn't seem logical. But... It's there. And so, you know, I tr whenever things get a bit dark, as they sometimes do, I sometimes pull away from war, as I have in the past. I've withdrawn from war mm -hmm. when I sense a kind of darkness inside. But that's my best, the best way I can describe it. Um, yeah. When all I'm thinking about is, or I feel kind of consumed by darkness. Um, I know that I've gone too close, too far to death. And so I need to you know, recover the rest of the world and life. And I've, that's happened to me a few times in my life. Um, and so, I, you know, I have a kind of instinctive uh, relationship with it. Um, I, I, but, I, guess, yeah. I, guess, I guess my last question for you um, is, I, I was friends with a biographer of J.D. Salinger and one of the observations he had about The Catcher in the Rye, which took 10 years for Salinger to write, he was actually writing it while he was, uh, he had it on his person during D-Day, during Hurtgen Forest, during the Battle of the Bulge, um, is that it had nothing to do with a high school kid or adolescence. It was far more about a soldier trying to reacclimate to civilian life after experiencing horrific traumas that Salinger saw liberating three sub-concentration camps uh, across Europe. Um, with, with Ben Anderson, it was really apparent talking to him that because of PTSD, he was not able to go back to cover conflict. And he just found ordinary American existence really unstimulating. And I remember uh, I asked him to come on the show because I'd seen him at a boxing event and the way he processes boxing, violence, um, 
is unlike anybody that I ever see in a crowd. His face always jumps out at me as I'm watching from press row before I recognize that it's the face of somebody I'm friendly with because it's so placid. And mm. I wonder for you, um, is there a component of compulsion or addiction to being close to violence and death for you? Or are, are you now some decades into your career, do you think that you'll be comfortable leaving it behind for sort of ordinary life? Is that something that, that worries you or causes any anxiety? <laughs> I have to say, um, you know, ordinary American life is boring as hell. It's very... <laughs> it really, really is. It's just such a pedestrian thing. I um, I don't mean that in any way to be offensive of anybody, but it's just so devoid of... of, of I don't know, um, of excitement or, or the kind of contours of reality that I became habituated to. Not all of them to do with war. Mm. The, 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 the incredible landscape of dra dra dramatic history that's taking place all the time around us, it's not only war. It's like, look at the Amazon. It's the last stand of wilderness and original people against the onslaught of, of, you know, brutal modernity in all of its forms that we saw destroy our country 150 years ago, still taking place in Brazil, in East Africa, in Central Africa, and in a few extraordinary parts of the world, it's still taking place. So I'm also fascinated by that, and I see it as a great, the great drama and the epic of history that I you know, just as war, war is only one part of it, but I, that I want to observe and see. And so the, the, to contemplate the idea that I would somehow not go out at all, that would be truly, that would be, you know, a living death. I, you know, I would really not want to be living if I couldn't <laughs> go out at all. I can accustom, I can situate myself to, you know, something of a less traveled life, maybe take up, things that I haven't been doing that I should be doing or would like to be doing more contemplative. But if I, if I can't get out periodically to see the world that, you know, the world that has always fascinated me, the bits that I have yet to see or the bits that I want to see again and to contribute in some way with my writing, uh, then, uh, then I would feel pretty sad. Um, war War doesn't hold anything new for me right now. Um, for me, it's always been a learning experience. Um, and I had had two great sort of tranches of my life uh, dedicated to war. The first lasted about 11 years. And in the last war I went to in that first tranche was actually Bosnia. I've never written about it. Um, uh, and I realized on my second trip there, I was to, I made repeated trips to a besieged village to sort of try to understand how people behave under siege. And um, I realized that I, I had felt this all before and that I'd seen this all before. And it, I didn't feel anything there. It was their war, but it wasn't something I was learning from. I wasn't part of the, you know, the, Sarajevo Hilton Hotel set. I mean, it, you know, that that understandably was a profound experience for many people, or the Holiday Inn, whatever it's called. 
but I was, you know, I was, uh, you know, I went there for different reasons. And, and so that ended that whole period of war or fascination for war with me, which, and it began again, that would have been 90, 91, 92, 92. And the next time was 2001 on September 11th, when I realized that the world had changed in a profound way and I needed to be back. And I need, and that, that continued until recently. I, I, in the last few years, I felt once again that I don't have much to learn and therefore maybe not contribute either to the world of war. And I've felt the need to recapture what's alive in the world for me. Um, and so I'm in this not exactly uneasy, but it's an unresolved limbo in which I'm 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 savoring the living world rather than the killing and the dying one. Hmm. Are, are there some big benefits to that to that that shift? Are there some big what benefits to that that making that shift? Um. Yeah, I guess I feel less angry. Hmm. Yeah, I feel less angry um, at the injustice of it. Um, I was getting to the point in some of these conflicts where I didn't really want to report on them. I wanted to participate in them. You know, I wanted to kill people. I wanted to um, do the right thing. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Uh, the the problem is when you understand conflict, as I guess I feel I do, you also see the way political leaders and commanders, even military commanders, make terrible mistakes and cost lives. And and at a certain point in various conflicts that are still going on, I could pretty much predict what was going to happen next because there's a logic to war and killing. You know, sometimes you have to kill more in order to just stop the war. You have to be robust rather than recede. You have to do this. You have to do that. And when I've seen the wrong decisions we made, I, I felt very, very, I felt terrible because I knew that this would inevitably mean many, many, many more thousands of people's lives brutally torn from them. And so, you know, maybe I got the new war too much, but I got to the point where, you know, I would have been just as happy to call in airstrikes as go and write a story about them. So mm. probably time to pull back. Right. John, I really appreciate your time today and this was such a, a pleasure. <laughs> Likewise, Ren. It's a, my pleasure too. Take care. You too. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcon Swaby, Dolgan Media, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and our audio editor is Anda Salaji. Thanks for listening. <laughs>